Rico Report is a weekly public affairs program providing independent media coverage of environmental and ecological studies with a focus on local, state, and regional people, issues, and events in order to foster open discussion of human relationships with nature and the earth and to encourage you to take personal responsibility for living sustainably in the world. Eco Report is produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana and financially supported by listeners like you. Hello and welcome to Eco Report. For WFHB, I'm Patrick Callanan. And I'm Sarah Callanan. Today in our feature, Enrique Sands from the Indiana Environmental Reporter talks about race and pollution. That's coming up later in the program, but first, your environmental headlines. Did Hurricane Isaias impact turtle nesting? Sea turtles nest on beaches from Florida to North Carolina. The nesting season starts in April in Florida and in May farther north and ends in October. The total of nesting turtles is a few thousand. The eggs incubate for about 60 days and the babies emerge from July through October. The hurricane occurred at the height of turtle nesting season. Loggerheads are one of four types of sea turtles that nest. Three are endangered and a loggerhead is considered in a threatened stage. There is not an overview assessment of the impact of Hurricane Isaias as of this time. This story was pieced together by looking at events in communities along the coast. Many communities have patrols that monitor the beaches every day during nesting season to mark new nests and track those that have hatched. The situation in Florida is unclear. Since the hurricane did not make landfall in Florida, there was not extensive loss of sand dunes. Brevard Zoo in Florida took in dozens of sea turtles, but experts later said that many of them didn't need to be rescued in the first place. The turtles were gathered by the public from nests that were exposed. However, it is illegal for the public to touch eggs or hatchlings. Palm Beach and Cocoa Beach appear to have suffered minor losses. Olden Beach in North Carolina is where the hurricane came ashore, and there was extensive loss. Prior to the storm, there were 45 unhatched nests on Holden Beach. Sadly, only three remain after Hurricane Isaias came through. Turtle Patrol members will monitor these nests with the hope of seeing hatchlings later in the season, and they will continue to look for signs of new turtle nests each morning. Greenland is known for its glaciers, but in the past month, the island has shed ice. Scientists didn't expect to see Greenland melt at this rate for another 50 years. By the last week of July, the melting had reached levels that climate models projected for 2070 in the most pessimistic scenario. On August 1st, Greenland's ice sheet lost 12 billion tons of ice, more than any day since researchers started recording ice loss in 1950, the Washington Post reported. Greenland's ice sheet lost 55 billion tons of water over five days in July and August, enough to cover the state of Florida in almost five inches of water. The dramatic melt suggests that Greenland's ice sheet is approaching a tipping point that could set it on an irrevocable course toward disappearing entirely. If that happens, catastrophic sea level rise would swallow coastal cities around the globe. 
as ice melt continues to outpace scientists' expectations, some fear that that could happen more quickly than they thought. This extreme melting came during the hottest month ever recorded as an intense heat wave washed over Europe, then wafted over Greenland. Low elevation ice began to melt and form pools across the ice sheet, and those pools' dark colors absorbed more sunlight, which further melted the glacier around them and exposed more ice to hot air. Similarly, above-average melting was observed in Switzerland. Glaciers there lost 800 million tons of ice during the heat waves of June and July. Alaska also set a record sea ice melt in July. All that melting exposes more permafrost, frozen soil that releases powerful greenhouse gases when it thaws. That's happening faster than scientists predicted. The release of those gases leaves the planet to warm even more, which accelerates more ice melt. Quote, by mid to end of the century is when we would be seeing those melt levels, not right now. End quote. Ruth Mottram, a climate scientist at the Danish Meteorological Institute, told Inside Climate News, the models are clearly not able to capture some of these important processes. A study from the University of Iowa turned up some concerning information about a class of insecticides called pyrethroids, which constitute the majority of household insecticide use in homes, yards, and gardens. Pyrethroids are also used extensively in agriculture. The researchers found that people with the highest exposure to the commonly used insecticides were three times more likely to die from cardiovascular disease than were people with low or no exposure. Those exposed people were also 56% more likely than unexposed people to die from any cause during the study's follow-up period. The world's second most popular class of insecticides, pyrethroids, concentrate in the dust in homes when they're used indoors. The other main route of exposure is through residues on such foods as produce. Decades ago, when pyrethroids began to be widely used, they were promoted as less toxic than other insecticides. The University of Iowa findings are worrisome because they show a correlation between pyrethroid exposure and death. The Center for Biological Diversity has released a new report titled Toxic Hangover, How the EPA is Approving New Products with Dangerous Pesticides It Committed to Phasing Out. Documents obtained through the Freedom of Information Act show that the EPA approved 94% of new pesticide product applications in a recent two-year period. Of the 6% the EPA denied, not one was because the product was too dangerous. Denials came because the companies didn't follow the right procedures in applying. Among the products approved are 17 containing endocrine disruptor atrazine and in Europe. 91 products received approval even though they contain restricted-use pesticides which are so dangerous that they can be applied only by a professional. Fifteen new products contain organophosphates, which are toxic to the nervous system, and 69 products contain a known or likely carcinogen. 
The EPA's reduced risk program is intended to give companies an incentive to seek approval for lower risk new pesticides and to give priority to alternatives to such chemicals as organophosphates and atrazine. But instead, the agency is approving new pesticides containing the same old hazardous ingredients. A research team led by the U.S. Department of Energy's Argonne National Laboratory in collaboration with Northern Illinois University has discovered a new electrocatalyst that converts carbon dioxide and water into ethanol. The process occurs with very high energy efficiency and high selectivity for the desired final product and low cost. Ethanol is a desirable commodity because it is an ingredient in nearly all U.S. gasoline and is widely used as an intermediate product in the chemical, pharmaceutical, and cosmetics industries. The cost per gallon has not been published, so it is not known how it compares with ethanol produced by fermentation. With presumptive Democratic nominee Joe Biden's climate platform becoming increasingly ambitious thanks to nonstop grassroots pressure, fossil fuel executives and lobbyists are pouring money into the coffers of President Donald Trump's re-election campaign. The Houston Chronicle reported that oil and gas executives are writing checks to President Donald Trump with greater zeal than they did four years ago as Biden campaigns on a climate plan that seeks to eliminate carbon emissions by mid-century. According to the Center for Responsive Politics, Trump's re-election campaign has thus far raised $1 million from the oil and gas industry, more than three times what the industry has donated to Biden. In contrast, the Chronicle noted, Trump only narrowly led Hillary Clinton in fossil fuel industry donations over the 2016 campaign cycle. The Deepwater Horizon oil spill, the largest in U.S. history, occurred 10 years ago. As the Government Accountability Project put it, quote, for those living in the Gulf region who were exposed to Corexit, the reality is a grotesque, life-altering, threatening nightmare from which they can't wake up, end quote. Corexit is a chemical compound that BP, the owner of the rig that exploded to cause the spill, used supposedly to disperse the oil. In actuality, it made the oil settle on the seafloor, giving the illusion of dispersal. Because of the application of Corexit, the cleanup greatly exacerbated the spill's destructive impact on public health. When Corexit mixes with oil, poisonous contamination results that poses a greater threat than does the oil itself. The severe public health impacts of oil Corexit exposure are legion. The so-called Gulf Syndrome has made deaths connected with the cleanup common. Cancer is so prevalent that residents have named the exposed area Cancer Alley. Skin rashes are so severe that victims call them suicide itches. Other health problems reported commonly include respiratory loss, seizures, pain, migraines resistant to treatment, cranial pressure, and brain holes documented by magnetic resonance imaging. People have developed extreme chemical sensitivity to the point that it's difficult to eat or use common household items like detergent. Tongue tumors are frequent. Victims have reported that their symptoms diminish after they leave the Gulf area but resume promptly when they return. BP pledged to provide medical treatment for victims of the disaster but hasn't come through. 
South Korea has become the first East Asian country to issue a climate manifesto. The manifesto, announced by the nation's ruling party, contains a series of policies, including net zero emissions by 2050, a carbon tax on polluters, no overseas coal investment, and the intention to develop a Korea-customized Green New Deal policy to boost the economy as part of its COVID-19 response. In the lead-up to the parliamentary election that resulted in the climate manifesto, Greenpeace East Asia campaigners and local activists argued that the country's current economic structure was proven vulnerable by the coronavirus outbreak and that the climate crisis might bring an even larger economic shock in the future. The campaigners asserted that the only way to mitigate the larger shock and disaster fueled by climate change is by proactively tackling it and restructuring the economy with a Korean Green New Deal. Supporters hope other governments will follow suit. The past decade has seen rapid transformations as countries move towards clean energy generation, supply, and consumption. Coal-fired power plants have been retired as reliance on natural gas and emissions-free renewable energy sources increases. Since 2015, 94 of 115 countries have improved their combined score on the Energy Translation Index, which analyzes each country's readiness to adopt clean energy using three criteria, energy access and security, environmental sustainability, and economic development and growth. But the degree of change and the timetable for reaching net zero emissions differ greatly among countries, and taken as a whole, today's advances are insufficient to meet the climate targets set by the Paris Agreement. Sweden tops the overall ranking for the third consecutive year as the country most ready to transition to clean energy, followed by Switzerland and Finland. Top-ranked countries share a reduced reliance on imported energy lower energy subsidies, and a strong political commitment to transforming their energy sector to meet climate targets. The UK and France are the only G20 economies in the top 10, however, which is otherwise made up of smaller nations. China, ranked 78th, has made strong advances in controlling CO2 emissions by switching to electric vehicles and investing heavily in solar and wind energy. It currently has the world's largest installed solar power and wind capacity. The high energy-consuming countries, including the U.S., Canada, and Brazil, show little, if any, progress towards an energy transition. In the U.S., ranked 32nd, moves to establish a more sustainable energy sector have been hampered by policy decisions. Neighboring Canada grapples with the conflicting demands of a growing economy and the need to decarbonize the energy sector. The Protect America's Children from Toxic Pesticides Act, or PACTPA, is now before Congress. This bill, introduced by Senator Tom Udall, Democrat of New Mexico, and Representative Joe Neguzzi, Democrat of Colorado, would overhaul current U.S. pesticide rules, requiring new rules to protect people and the environment. Every year, the U.S. uses over a billion pounds of pesticides, nearly a fifth of global usage, and the amount continues to rise. The current law governing U.S. pesticides regulations, the Federal Insecticide 
fungicide and rodenticide act is outdated and prioritize pesticide industry's interests above the health and safety of people and the environment. PACTPA would provide important protections for frontline communities that bear the brunt of pesticide exposure, prohibit the use of old stockpiles of banned pesticides, and require the listing of inert ingredients on all pesticide products. Specifically, PACTPA would ban especially dangerous pesticides, including insecticides containing organophosphates or neonicotinoids and herbicides containing paraquat. The bill would close loopholes that have allowed the EPA to issue emergency exemptions and conditional registrations to use pesticides even before they go through full health and safety reviews. The bill would allow people to request a review of pesticides that would otherwise be approved for use indefinitely. What's more, the bill would protect farm workers by requiring reports of injuries, compelling the EPA to review those reports, providing improved pesticide label instructions for use and requiring labels in languages besides English. Last, it would require the suspension and review of pesticides that Canada and the European Union deem unsafe. In short, PACTBA would begin to make the regulatory system put people and the planet before pesticides. And now for a feature, we will hear Enrique Sands from the Indiana Environmental Reporter talk about race and pollution. People across the streets are taking to the streets to protest racial inequity, saying that people of color have a wholly different experience in the country than white Americans. New findings from a statewide survey indicate that the disparity extends to how Hoosiers of different races perceive climate change and its risks. More Hoosiers of color believe climate change is happening than white Hoosiers and are twice as likely to believe climate change will harm them a great deal. Hoosiers of color are also 25% more likely to agree that climate change is harming people in the U.S. right now. Those findings are part of an analysis of the Hoosier Life Survey, a comprehensive survey conducted by Indiana University's Environmental Resilience Institute that sought out Hoosiers' attitudes on environmental change and risk, personal values, and trust in news media. Matthew Hauser, co-lead author of the Hoosier Life Survey and ERI assistant research scientist, said the data mirrors available research on racial inequality related to climate change and the experiences of people of color living throughout the country. Frankly, the, the topic needs to be addressed and, and should be addressed, the racial inequalities related to climate change. And this is a hell of a time to address it. Racial inequalities affect people in, in lots of different ways and uh, are related to climate change and, and specifically are, are relevant to Indiana in, in terms of climate change. This isn't something that's you know, just happening in New Orleans or whatever, it's, it's happening in Indianapolis too. Climate change sets off a chain of events that affects the health of everyone, but especially people of color. The emission of greenhouse gases emitted by human activities are a primary driver of climate change. Climate change has made Indiana hotter over the past century. Since 1895, Indiana's statewide annual average temperature has risen by 1.2 degrees Fahrenheit, or about 0.1 degrees Fahrenheit per decade. Larger cities in Indiana, home to much of the state's minority population, have experienced even more heat. 
In Indianapolis, the average summer temperature has risen 1.8 degrees since 1970. The average low temperature on summer nights are 3 degrees warmer. Indianapolis also experiences nine more days with temperatures above 90 degrees every year compared to 50 years ago. Fort Wayne, Indiana's second largest city, averages two more days every year with temperatures above 90 degrees than 50 years ago. To some, the answer to beating the heat is as simple as walking indoors and enjoying air conditioning, but that option isn't available to everyone. Hauser said his team's survey found that black Hoosiers and other minorities in Indiana reported having less access to air conditioning, setting them up to be less able to adapt to high heat. We see a pretty significant disparity in terms of access to things like air conditioning, which obviously are not an ideal response to high heat from climate change, but are, is, is a life-saving technology, without a doubt. It's particularly pronounced for non-Black minorities that I, I believe 86% use air conditioning, which is, which is certainly a strong majority, but compared to the 95% of white Hoosiers that have air conditioning, and then the additional 4% of white Hoosiers that say they don't want air conditioning, which means almost every Hoosier either has it, or if they don't have it, it's because they don't want it. The economic fallout from the COVID-19 pandemic has also led to an increase in energy insecurity. Researchers from IU's O'Neill School of Public and Environmental Affairs asked people living at or below the federal poverty line about their economic situations and found that about twice the amount of black and Hispanic respondents could not afford to pay their energy bill. Higher temperatures caused by air pollution then contributes to further air pollution in cities. Nitrogen oxides and volatile organic compounds are emitted by sources like power plants and car exhaust, which are plentiful in cities like Indianapolis. Those pollutants can mix with other emitted chemicals to produce particulate matter, another pollutant. Nitrogen oxides can also mix with heat and sunlight to produce ground-level ozone, which can make breathing difficult, aggravate respiratory and cardiovascular problems, and could even cause an increase in premature death. In Marion County alone, 4 in 10 black Hoosiers live in neighborhoods with a high air pollution risk, nearly twice the rate of white Hoosiers. Those neighborhoods have been found to be about 20% more densely populated than other neighborhoods, increasing the risk of contracting communicable diseases like COVID-19. In Indiana, black Hoosiers have accounted for a disproportionate amount of COVID-19 cases in the state. Black Hoosiers account for about 11.5% of total COVID-19 cases, while only making up about 9.8% of the population. A Harvard study that looked into COVID-19 deaths in 3,000 U.S. counties found that people who live in areas with long-term exposure to air pollution had an increased chance of dying from the disease. Of increase of only one microgram per cubic meter of fine particulate matter exposure increased the chance of dying from COVID-19 by 8%. Jacqueline Patterson, director of the NAACP's Environmental and Climate Justice Program, told Congress earlier this year that the different lives the system allows people of different races to live is affecting their health. As we all know, the same systemic inequities that make certain populations differentially vulnerable to various impacts from the COVID-19 pandemic are the same systemic underpinnings that comprise the root causes driving environmental injustice, including climate change. Racism, xenophobia, sexism combined with poverty, housing, housing insecurity, racial profiling, differential access to healthcare, under-resourced education, privatized criminal justice, 
and disproportionate exposure to pollution that attacks the lungs, rendering communities even more vulnerable to COVID-19 that also targets the lungs. Hauser said the survey also showed that black Hoosiers were twice as likely as white Hoosiers to support climate-related policies like public funding for air conditioning, free health services for vulnerable populations during heat waves, and an early warning system to reduce heat wave risks. ERI offers several tools for local officials seeking to plan for climate change, including the Hoosier Resilience Index and ERI Toolkit. Hauser said ERI now plans to develop a new tool that will assess major risks faced in metropolitan areas and tell local leaders what their residents want them to do to address those risks. For ECO Report, I'm Sarah Callanan. And I'm Patrick Callanan. Support for Eco Report comes from Blooming Foods Market and Deli, Bloomington's locally grown co-op grocery since 1976, offering products with a focus on local, fair trade, natural, and organic, with support for farmers, producers, agencies, and artisans. Blooming Foods Market and Deli on East 3rd Street near College Mall, West 6th Street near the Courthouse Square, and Shreve Hall on the Ivy Tech campus. Are you looking for a way to make a difference on environmental issues? Here at EcoReport, we are currently looking for reporters and segment producers. Our goal is to report facts on how we're all affected by global climate disruption and the ongoing assaults on our air, land, and water. We also celebrate ecologists, tree huggers, soil builders, and an assortment of champions who actively protect and restore our natural world, particularly those who are active in South Central Indiana. All levels of experience and all ages are welcome, and we provide the training you'll need. WFHB also offers internships. To volunteer for EcoReport, give us a call at 812-323-1200 or email us at earth at wfhb.org. And now for our events calendar. Learn about nature and environmental topics in the Freedom Farmers Book Club Reading Group book written by Monica M. White is available at mcpl.info freedom with your library card. Join the book discussions between 6 and 7.30 p.m. on Tuesdays on Zoom. To register, go to mcpl.info calendar. The Bloomington Community Orchard is continuing its weekly work and learn days from 5 to 8 p.m. on Wednesdays at the flagship orchard site located at 2120 South Highland Avenue in Bloomington. No need to register. Just show up and you will learn what needs to be done. Volunteering is open to people of all ages, abilities, and experience. Spring Mill State Park is offering a 10-mile trail challenge. The challenge is 10.8 miles long and encompasses all of the park's trails. The challenge can be completed in a day or spread out over a year. Take a wildflower hike at McCormick's Creek State Park on Friday, August 14th at 1 p.m. This program is designed to take your understanding of plants to a new level. Meet at the Deer Run Shelter to learn about native plants and their place in the ecosystem. Topics will cover identification, plant life cycles, history, and edible, medicinal, and poisonous plants. 
take a tree ID hike at Brown County State Park on Monday, August 17th from 11 to 11.30 a.m. Meet the naturalists outside the Nature Center for a half-mile moderate hike along the Discovery Trail, where you will learn to identify common trees in the park. And that wraps up our show for this week. Eco Report is brought to you in part by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. Found locally at 812-334-4003 and on the web at mpisolarenergy.com. This week's headlines were written by Norm Holy and Linda Green. Today's feature was produced by IER reporter Enrique Sands. David Lyman wrote the script, and Linda Green and Patrick Callanan edited it. Juliana Daly compiled the events. Patrick Callanan produced and engineered today's show. For WFHB, I'm Patrick Callanan. And I'm Sarah Callanan. And this is Eco Report.